from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. I have always been impressed uh, throughout my life with the majesty, and I don't use that word lightly or often, the majesty of the transition of power in the United States, how it is affable and seamless. And no matter how difficult the election itself has been, uh, the transitions are cordial. And I do not think that this transition is going to be that way. What you gonna do about it? That was Dan Caldwell, who last visited us in January when we were all wrapped up in an impeachment and the Trump effect on our international relationships. Now, here we are dealing with anything but a smooth and peaceful transition of power, what until now was a hallmark of our democracy. This is politics. Meet me in the middle. I'm Bill Curtis. Well, first, our panel, our Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, best-selling author, a prolific worldwide lecturer, Professor Ed Larson. Nice to see you zoomed in, Ed. It's great to talk to you too, Bill. And even more, it's great to talk to Dan again. Also, Jane Albrecht, an international trade attorney who represented U.S. interests to high-level government officials all over Europe and Russia. She is a dedicated political activist and has participated in numerous presidential campaigns. Hey, Jane, nice to remotely see you too. Always good to see you and Ed, and welcome, Dan. And our special returning guest, as you've heard, Dan Caldwell. He's a distinguished political science professor at Pepperdine University. He holds a master's and a Ph.D. from Stanford, another master's from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And he's also taught at the Naval Postgraduate School at Stanford, UCLA, Brown University. And he is the editor of five books and the author of five, including two international relations textbooks. You've seen Dan on CNN. Of course, you've also seen him here on Meet Me in the Middle back in January. Welcome, Dan. Nice to have you here. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So let's dive into this presidential transition process, or lack thereof, if we could. Of course, everyone knows we're embroiled in a bit of a bar fight rather than this smooth, elegant transfer of power. Actually, Ed, let's take you aside first. Uh, Historically, uh, were there any really difficult transitions between administrations in our past? Yes, a little bit. It depends what you mean by difficult. It was difficult counting the votes in the 1876 election, where there were a lot of disputes and resolving the election took all the way to the final counting process, which you know now occurs in January. So it would that one stretched on a long time. But we've never had the situation where one of the candidates simply refuses to concede when there's a clear outcome in the Electoral College. So, Ed, you don't think that there's a chance that Trump would hold the umbrella for Biden this year? I honestly don't know whether he'll go to the inauguration, but frankly, I don't know if they'll, how the thing's going to play out in the long run. I don't think he'd hold an umbrella for Melania, much less Biden. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dan, let's dive into the actual transition uh, with such things as the release of funds, the briefings, the the transition between administrations. Uh, Have those been difficult in the past or does this stand to be our first experience? I participated on the transition team in 1992 on the Clinton-Gore transition team. 
And essentially, the task of the members of the transition team for any administration is from the election to inauguration, which is a period of about 11 weeks, to accomplish two things. One, to identify as many as possible of the 4,000 political appointees in the U.S. government. And then secondly, to identify the major issues that members of the transition team think that the new administration should focus on. Those are big tasks in 11 weeks to try to do that. Can we dive into that just a little bit? Let's start with the 4,000 some odd appointments. Uh, Is it the new administration's job to like pick the top 50 and then from there, those picks are actually involved in picking their staffs or how does that work? It depends upon the administration. Some presidents will sort of give the responsibility to the heads of agencies and departments to choose their own team. Other presidents will exert strict control over the appointees. So that's really up to the individual administration. And what are some of the most pivotal appointments at the top of different areas of government? Well, obviously, the heads of departments who become the members of the cabinet are the most important, and we can identify the secretaries of state as being one of the oldest and most prestigious, most important appointment in foreign policy, secretary of defense and national security issues, secretary of the treasury and economic issues, secretary of commerce for trade, on down the list. But in addition to the departments are the heads of agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency and other associated agencies. Now, would you suspect in this case, Biden has a fair amount of experience in government, obviously. Do you think that he pretty much knows coming in who his most pivotal picks are going to be for these roles? I think given his long experience, 36 years in the Senate gives him a wealth of experience So he's not going to be like Robert Redford in that that great movie, The Candidate, who when he wins the election says, what do we do now? I think he has a pretty good idea of what he wants to do. And I think given his interest and expertise in foreign policy, President Biden is going to maintain that portfolio and probably hand off a number of the domestic issues to Vice President Kamala Harris. Ed, is it a complete turnover, a revolving door? Does everybody from the last administration go and new people are appointed? Or sometimes uh, do you keep someone who is particularly good at what they do? Well, it depends on the nature of the transition. That is, who was in before and who's coming in and what's the relationship. So historically, it has varied. Of course, we're only talking about the relatively small number of direct appointments by the administration. Most of the jobs in government are civil service, and they will continue. Many of those civil service jobs have an enormous amount of influence and power and those will continue to operate. But for the others, my guess is when you look back, you have some administrations where the new people coming in, even if it's a change of party, there was a great sense that this agency was running well, and we realize there are a lot of professionals, so we'll do a gradual changeover. The most famous probably of that in recent times was President Obama, keeping Bush's Secretary of Defense, who he thought was doing, Robert Gates, who's doing a good job, and he kept him in there, and he continued to do a good job, and that provided an important amount of transitional stability. This time, I think there's going to be a lot less of that. I think one of the factors that's really important is that when Donald Trump ran in 2016, 
a number of the most accomplished, experienced Republican foreign policy advisors, anyway, signed a letter opposing the nomination of Donald Trump. And so those became unappointable in the Trump administration. And the Trump administration had to reach down, not just to the A list or the B list, but to the C list of foreign policy advisors. In contrast, Joe Biden is going to be choosing from the A list of Democratic advisors. And I think hopefully he will also choose some moderate Republicans to try to fill in some of the positions to reunite the country. It's quite normal when a candidate wins that experts from their party would then try to get positions in the government. That's true in Republican administrations. It's true in Democratic administrations. Quite normal. There's been some discussion in the press about how many of these positions will be filled by Obama people as opposed to Biden people. I think you're going to find a mix. Biden has a lot of terrific experts that he's known for a long time. There will be people from the Obama administration that were good experts and will be appointed. And I think there will also be people who are Republicans, but who have a lot of expertise, for example, in the intelligence community. This administration is going to go for expertise, first and foremost, beyond the cabinet level. My main pitch for unity is that he picks those two extraordinary Republican senators from North Carolina to serve as ambassadors to wherever they want to go. I would be the first and second and third to endorse it. And, you know, I think that Susan Collins would be an excellent pick as ambassador to Canada. In 1992, when I was on the transition team, we would interview outgoing Republican officials and say, which of the people in your agency or your department do you think should stay on in the new administration? And the Clinton administration kept a number of officials in the government who had high marks from their colleagues. So, Dan, let's go into the transition funds for just a minute and the purpose of them, the deployment. Does the incoming administration actually go ahead and hire people who are going to be appointed to spend their time getting briefed and ready for appointment? Or what are those funds used for? There are very few of the 500 members of the Biden transition team who are paid. It's just a small percentage of that 500-member transition team. For instance, in 92, when I was on the transition team, I was a volunteer. So the money that is allocated is relatively little to pay the top members of the transition team, probably the team members of various departments and agencies. But most of the 500 members of the Biden transition team are volunteers who are doing this. And many of them will wind up with appointments because they are specialists, they are interested in supporting the administration, and so I think many of those 500 will wind up with appointments. But that still leaves around 3,500 appointments who are not on the transition team that the transition team members will be trying to identify for various agencies and departments. You know, I agree with what Dan and Ed have said. One of my greatest concerns is the Senate slowing up the appointments. With Trump, you had a situation where he was very slow to make a lot of his appointments. He wasn't terribly prepared to take over when he was elected. In this situation, we're facing a Senate who may want to slow down the appointments process just to make it difficult for the administration to be effective. So, Dan, let's talk about security briefings for a moment. How important are they at this phase, uh, or do we still have time for things to smooth out before security briefings uh, are necessary? They're vitally important, and they are not being done. 
And we can see a previous case where the delay in presenting those security briefings had, uh, I think, a very serious negative effect on American security. Namely, in the 2000 election, as I mentioned before, there was a long delay in naming George W. Bush, and that could have contributed to the lack of preparedness that the United States had for the September 11, 2001 attacks in the United States. If we jump ahead to the present, we've got a lot of things on the table that are, are serious threats to the United States starting with Iran possibly moving down the path of developing nuclear weapons as a result of the, the cancellation of the Iran nuclear agreement. We have Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who has continued tests of intercontinental ballistic missiles, which could reach California in the West Coast. We have China pursuing a very activist policy in the South China Sea. And so there are just a number of issues that incoming national security officials really need to be up to speed on January the 20th. He's absolutely right. One of the things I believe is that rather than somebody attacking the U.S., what's going to happen is, is countries like China and Russia will take advantage of this disarray to make moves in the South China Seas and elsewhere that's going to be hard for the next administration to deal with. Let's take a couple of different challenges we have and knock them down one by one. As opposed to the international position, let's talk about homeland security for a moment. What does the transition look like for homeland security and what are the most important aspects of it and which ones do you think we're lacking in right now? Well, Homeland Security has a very broad mandate in terms of its responsibilities, in terms of all the way from immigration to some intelligence functions. So I think that that's one area that really needs to analyze existing policies to figure out what direction we're going to go in the Biden administration. Because I think in some of the areas, specifically immigration, there are going to be very dramatic departures from the Trump administration's policies. Joe Biden has already announced that on day one, he's going to change the policy toward dreamers. That will be one of his first actions is to uh, protect dreamers in the United States. But I think there'll be a number of other policy initiatives as well. Obviously, we can't even begin to talk about the challenges that are helping us to lose sleep without addressing the war on COVID. Do you suspect that a transition process really matters on the war on COVID or are enough players working on that independently where we don't really need to worry about whether or not the data is being transferred as it should or the briefings are going as they should? I think on COVID, there's a dramatic difference in the Trump and incoming Biden administrations. For instance, you look at the advisory group that the Biden transition team has put together on COVID, and they are recognized experts that have over the past eight months been speaking truth to power in terms of not trying to bow to ideological loyalty to a particular view of the threat of COVID. I read the astounding statistic the other day that Donald Trump has not attended meetings of his COVID-19 task force in five months. And that's absolutely incredible and I think inexcusable. I think Biden will take a strong interest in that. His chief of staff, Ron Plain, was previously in charge of the Obama administration's response to Ebola. And so I think that he has the background and I think the interest in addressing this issue that is sadly and tragically spiraling out of control. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Dan Caldwell, Ed Larson and Jane Albrecht. 
On Medicine, We're Still Practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. So we're back with Dan Caldwell, and let me go to you right away, Dan, and let's talk about your specialty for a minute, because we touched on it last January when you were with us. Is it possible an outgoing administration could pull a bunch of levers that are difficult to reverse? For example, could Trump execute a withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan in this short amount of time? I don't think that it will be possible to withdraw all American troops by Christmas, as uh, Donald Trump has said he wants to do. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, has indicated that that's not possible. I mean, just in terms of logistics of withdrawing those troops safely from Afghanistan would be very difficult to do. And I think that the top military leadership would oppose a unsafe withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think when the Biden administration comes in, Joe Biden has been pretty clear that he favors reducing the number of troops to a relatively small number of special forces to be used for counter-terrorist missions in Afghanistan. So I think that will be the way that things develop in Afghanistan. What, what do you think are some of the transition risks that we're having in regard to North Korea? I think that North Korea has continued its development of nuclear weapons. And so any country with nuclear weapons poses a potential threat to the United States. And then the kind of false optimism that Trump's meetings with Kim Jong-un created, I think, is also a danger. Some Americans think that the threat from North Korea is over because of the quote-unquote bromance between Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. But that quite clearly and factually is not the case. North Korea still poses a great threat to the security of the United States, and I think a greater threat to the United States than when Donald Trump assumed office. Because there is no friendship? Don't you think it's a bit of a threat calling these folks thugs in, in debates and then electing the person who refers to them that way? Yes, but that was the early Trump administration. And then in the last several years, there's been this friendship between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, where they have exchanged beautiful letters, according to Donald Trump. And I think that's created a false expectation on the part of many Americans that the threat from North Korea is reduced, if not eliminated. But the incoming administration, Biden's administration, has referred to them as thugs the leaders of North Korea. And wouldn't you think that it's perhaps better to have a, a fictional romance than it is to have such an adversarial stance? I think it's important to recognize reality. And Kim Jong-un has, for instance, killed 75 members of his own family and his closest advisors, including a half-brother with an anti-aircraft artillery system. In addition, the number of North Koreans kept in what are akin to concentration camps has been underplayed by the Trump administration. And I think it's important to call attention to gross violations of human rights. And the Biden administration has said that it will do that once it assumes office. The other thing that doesn't get talked about much is that while China doesn't totally control North Korea, trade between North Korea and China is so essential to North Korea that China can exert a lot of influence. And if China winks and nods and says, go ahead and do some tests because it helps in their own negotiations with the United States, 
that's another problem. Relations with China are a multi-dimensional chess game. And in my opinion, Trump never even got to level one of understanding that. Interesting. And of course, we can't move away from talking about transition challenges in international relationships without touching on Russia. How do you see that relationship developing? What do you think the Biden administration is focusing on right now? And certainly the Trump administration's relationship with Russia has been interesting. Uh, A lot of people have been scratching their heads over that for years. Uh, Where do you see that going? I think Putin has played Donald Trump like a fiddle. Donald Trump has responded to his manipulation in a way that is antithetical to American interests. And I'd cite in particular his appearance in Helsinki, side by side with Vladimir Putin. When a reporter asked him about Russian interference in the 2016 election, and Donald Trump responded that he had talked with Putin. Putin assured him that Russia had not intervened in the election, and he saw no reason why Russia would intervene in the election. And he, in essence, was taking the word of an adversary of the United States, Vladimir Putin, over the conclusion of the 17 intelligence agencies of the United States government. It was, I think, an unprecedented action on the part of an American president. Essentially, does any of this matter or can the Biden-Harris administration prepare for a standing start in January? It sounds like lots of it has mattered. Even for the last four years, it's mattered. But more specifically, when we worry about the data transfer, security briefings, money released in the peaceful transfer of power from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. Are there signals that you're seeing that can tell you we're going to survive it okay? Or do you see some signals that tell you that we're in deep poop and need to worry about it more and put more influence wherever that could have effect on the Trump administration to cooperate? Well, I think there's good news and bad news. The bad news is that this administration is going to face greater problems, in my view, than any incoming administration since the end of World War II. And we've got, for starters, the trifecta of domestic crises, that is COVID-19, the economy, striving for greater racial equality. Add to that are the international challenges that, that we face in terms of long-term climate change as an existential threat, the threat from China, the threat from North Korea, from Russia, and I think China as well. So that's the bad news, is the Biden administration is going to face an enormous list of challenges coming into office. The good news, from my point of view, is going over the 500 members of the Biden transition team, there are, I think, some of the the best and the brightest thinkers in the United States addressing both domestic as well as international issues. But it's going to be a tough job. It's not going to be something that the incoming administration can change in a week, a month, a year, or possibly even one term, because I think there are enormous challenges confronting the incoming administration. Okay, we're going to take another very quick break. We'll be right back with Dan Caldwell. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. 
wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. And we're back with Professor Dan Caldwell. Dan, these 11 weeks would seem to be a crucial time period. Um, I know many of us were rather excited when the election was over because we thought that things were going to be somewhat normalized, and now we realize they're not normalized yet. In that process, if there were not only a lack of cooperation, but in fact a desire to booby trap from one administration to another, where should we watch out for such a thing? Well, this is really an inside baseball or more accurately, an inside bureaucracy comment. But the Trump administration has made a real attempt to change some of the civil service rules so that appointees will become civil servants, that is, career officials, and not political appointees that can be replaced by an incoming Biden administration. So it'd be much more difficult to replace or fire a career civil servant in that sort of a position than a political appointee. And we see that in a number of the different agencies where loyal Trump supporters have been appointed to these civil service positions in the Department of Defense, for instance, as well as other departments. But what they can do, Bill, and frankly, every administration that I've ever been familiar with has done just that, have tried to entrench their people into the civil service. Certainly Clinton did that. Certainly Reagan did that. Bush did that. But what you can do is you can reassign these people. They can't be fired but they can be transferred, which is what Trump did. Trump took you know, all the climate scientists and put them in charge of dog catching or something like that, move them to another place in the agency so they finally just give up or quit and so they could have a life or just hunker down and wait four years. So Biden will still have the ability to move these people around. Now they'll be consuming part of the budget, but he can move some of these people around and that is the normal procedure what he can also try to do in the short run is what he's doing right now with the arctic oil preserves is he can try to do the leases really fast and warp speed it if he warp speeds drug manufacturer he's certainly warp speeding the sale of the arctic leases so he can get them out under the bare minimum time which is two months which will be like two days before the inauguration Once those leases are granted to the oil companies to develop the oil there, it's a lot tougher to roll back. And of course, another thing it can do is just start issuing pardons galore. And these things are irreversible by the next administration? No, they're not irreversible. They're like Obama protected the young immigrants who were brought to America when they were young by their parents, the so-called dreamers. He protected them. He couldn't get through Congress, so he printed by regulation. Well, Trump tried repeatedly to reverse it. And, you know, you got to do it just right and you got to get it through the courts. So you can reverse some of them. Some are easier to reverse than others. But you grant a lease on Arctic lands and you get all sorts of property right issues. Yeah, it can be done. Maybe. You can't reverse a pardon. Pardon once granted and accepted is a done deal. But the others, yeah, you can do to an extent. As long as the Republicans hold the Senate, they'll be able to frustrate some of that because some of it requires Congress to go along with it. Uh, Dan, as Trump decided to replace the Secretary of Defense, 
Is it possible that enough people in those kind of positions could be replaced with Trump loyalists where it would be harder to get Trump out of the White House? For the last uh, four months prior to the election, I worked almost full time with a group called National Security Leaders for Biden, which consisted of 780 retired admirals and generals, former cabinet, subcabinet officials, and a few interlopers like myself. And that compared to a list of 235 retired admirals and generals that were supporting Donald Trump. And I think that gives a pretty good indicator of just the support for a regularized, more normal administration than we've had the last four years under Donald Trump. The military has to obey the president and the secretary of defense, but they do not have to obey illegal orders. And because of that, even Trump, with all his outrageous inclinations, knows that he needs a legal pretext in order to use the military domestically. That legal pretext was supposedly going to be to invalidate through the courts many of the battleground elections, at which point their legislatures could appoint a Trump-favorable set of electors. And then if people rose up against that, he would try to use the military. But even in countries like Russia, Putin knows he needs to get elected. Putin knows he needs legal pretext. Hitler had legal pretext for everything he did. They passed laws that allowed all this. Do you specifically know some people who are working on this transition? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Can you say how it's going for them so far? Are they feeling like we're going to circumvent the challenges and figure it all out? Oh, they're working, you know, 12, 14 hours a day trying to get things lined up to come into office. And they're working at a disadvantage, not having access to the members of the Trump administration or to classified information. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm quite concerned. The actions of the Trump administration to actually cripple the Biden transition process. My understanding is that in the White House, most White Houses, they clear out all the computers, all the papers, because they don't want the next administration to have access to that. But I've not worked in the White House. Do you know anything about that? Yeah, there's legislation that Ed probably knows more about than I do in terms of the Presidential Records Act, where any email, any letter, any communication is supposed to be permanently kept. So they could try to, to wipe computer hard disks and things like that, but, but there are permanent backups to that. So I think it's very unlikely that a member of any administration, Republican or Democrat, could actually erase documents or emails that they've written. So as we wrap this up, I can't help but ask all three of you, where is it written specifically that a president can't pardon him or herself? Uh, I mean, I think if he did that, it would end up in the Supreme Court. And how the Supreme Court would handle it, I don't know. If he really wants to be sure that his pardon will stick, I would, if I were Trump, step down a day or two before I got out of office and let Pence pardon me. Oh, I don't think Trump would do that because he can't cede power for a day. The people at the Constitutional Convention were clear that they were giving plenary pardon power to the president. So he can, I presume, pardon himself. Now, remember, though, that he can only pardon himself for federal crimes. That won't cover if the state of New York indicts him for tax evasion in New York. Can he pardon people for future crimes? No, he can pardon people for future prosecution for past crimes. Interesting. You don't suspect that there'll be a pleasant meeting at some point between Trump and Biden in the White House to affect a smooth transition going forward? 
nobody could have had a worse relationship than Obama and Trump. And yet Obama was graceful with respect to bringing Trump in. Same way was the case with the horrible relationship between Eisenhower and Truman and between Hoover and Roosevelt. And yet in both all those cases, Truman and, and Hoover went to the inauguration and were relatively gracious. What I'm looking for, and I'll be curious to see, is after Biden starts naming his members of the cabinet to see what happens at that level. Because historically, not only is there a reach out between the the old president and the president-elect, the old uh, vice president, Biden, when he was vice president, reached out and welcomed Pence and showed him around the vice presidential mansion there. But there's also that same sort of thing between new incoming cabinet members to come in, to meet the people, to talk about making the transition work at the cabinet level. And so I'm going to be looking very closely at the various different cabinet members. We've already gotten the hostility out of the secretary of state. For example, The transportation secretary is the wife of Mitch McConnell. Does she reach out? She has standing of her own. Does she reach out to the incoming transportation secretary? And as a practical matter, because Biden uniquely has so much experience, he's been vice president after all, he knows how the presidential process works. For a transition, it's even more important that the cabinet level transfers take place smoothly. Ed, I agree with you. Uh, I've got a question for both of you. If you were Biden, I mean, the meeting between the former president and the new president is very symbolic and very good from the standpoint of peaceful transition of power. But knowing what we know of Trump, substantively, will it make any difference if Biden meets with Trump or not? Well, if he does meet with him and I was Biden, I'd wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I have always been impressed throughout my life with the majesty and I don't use that word lightly or often, the majesty of the transition of power in the United States, how it is affable and seamless. And no matter how difficult the election itself has been, the transitions are cordial. And I do not think that this transition is going to be that way. I think that the United States is about to show the world that its constitution its strategies, its execution, its people, and its government is more powerful, more organized, and will be successful in this transition in spite of any one person or a bad actor of any kind. And I think at the end of the day, we're actually going to be proving to the world how powerful this country really is. Well, that'll wrap it up for this episode. Thanks to Ed Larson, Jane Albrecht, and of course, Dan Caldwell. How can people follow you, Dan? Probably my email is best, just dan.caldwell at pepperdine.edu. So until next week, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you don't have to hunt around for Meet Me in the Middle. Thanks to our producer, A.J. Mosley, our mastering by Stephen Rickyberg. Music for Meet Me in the Middle is composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. And the executive producer for this episode is Stuart Halpern. Here we are, making history together. Some will be proud of, and some not so much. See you next week, everybody. It will be okay. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.